Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Puery, and as always, I'm with peer reviewer, Dr. Lucy Jones. In each episode, you hear me thank our supporters who help underwrite the work of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Today's no different. Please consider sponsoring this podcast for as little as $5 per month. Simply go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search Dr. Lucy Jones. With your support, we continue to be here week after week. Now, let's get to it. This week, we're seeing dramatic images and news about volcanic eruptions in the Canary Islands. This is causing many to ask how and why there in the Canary Islands. And yes, for those who've been with us since episode 42 and 43, you may recall we did talk very detailed about volcanoes and where they happen. But for those just joining us, Lucy, could you give a few moments on volcano basics really briefly to set the stage? (laughs) Okay, there's four ways you can get volcanoes. You've got the mid-ocean ridges where the plates are moving apart and molten material comes up from the mantle. Second, you have subduction zones where the two tectonic plates are pushing together. One goes under the other, causes friction, melts some of the sediments, and you get the volcanoes like Japan along the subduction zone. A third place is what we call hot spots or mantle plumes, which is just for some reason, there's a place in the mantle that's really hot and that makes the material rise and we get these hot spots where we continue to see it coming. There's a fourth case where you might get some localized volcanism because the plate motion's a little bit messy and and pieces of the plates are getting pulled apart, sort of like Mammoth Mountain in California. So the Canary Islands are not the first. They're not on a mid-ocean ridge, though many people think that since they're out in the ocean. They're a hot spot and they're perhaps helped along by that fourth thing of a messy plate interaction between Africa and Europe. That was quick. It seems to catch people off guard because there hasn't been activity, volcanic activity, in 50 years here. As if that were a long time. The scientists call a volcano active if there's been an eruption within the last 10,000 years. Geologic processes take longer than people. And 50 years is just a very small interval between eruptions. And we've got an episode on that too. You have to look back and take a listen to that. What's interesting about this one is as it got started, you saw that authorities began evacuating the area before it happened, before where the actual eruption was going to take place. And unlike earthquakes, volcanoes have some key precursors to let you know what is imminent. Why is that about volcanoes versus earthquakes? We don't always know exactly, but before an eruption can happen, magma has to move from wherever it was to the surface of the earth. And there are often signs that the magma is moving. The biggest one is often earthquakes. You're pushing the magma through and it cracks the rocks around it. We'll also see bulging of the Earth's surface. We might see degassing, which is gases being pushed in front of the moving magma coming out. All of those tell us that the magma is moving. And if it looks like it's moving towards the surface, we basically guess and say, we think it's going to make it all the way to the surface and take some action, especially if it's coming up where there are people and it would be dangerous. Unlike volcanoes, in earthquakes, there's nothing that has to happen before the earthquake begins. You might think, well, think about it. When I break a pencil, I see the pencil beginning to bend a bit. And we went and looked for that with earthquakes. What we discovered is to the degree that something happens before an earthquake, it happens before every earthquake, independent of size, that the little ones and the big ones start the same way. There's 100 earthquakes every day in California. What's going on before a big earthquake goes on all the time because of the small ones. 
Okay, so back to this eruption. There's been talk that this eruption, this volcanic activity is going to cause an underwater landslide that would create a tsunami affecting the U.S. East Coast, right? On the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. What's all that about? How does that, how do we even get to that idea? We have seen evidence of such things. This is a hot spot like Hawaii, and especially in Hawaii, we've seen evidence. If you go look at the geology, it looks like there have been some really big landslides off the flank of the volcano. And there's some evidence that there was a big wave associated at least once with this flank failure. So we know it's possible. We see it in the geology. This idea got extra traction, especially with the Canary Islands, when a respected journal published a report back in 2001 suggesting that this island, La Palma, could have the same type of flank failure. This research paper made a model. It had lots of assumptions, said if we had the type of flank failure that we could see in these other places and it would displace the water and how the water would move, all of these assumptions created this sort of range of possible amounts of water. And of course, the news reports picked up the worst one, which was 80-foot wave hitting Florida. So with this journal article, people started talking about the potential for tsunamis in the Atlantic Ocean generated out of the Canary Islands. But many of us don't think that this is actually anything to worry about at this point. Now, wait a second. Week after week, we talk about the science talking about trusting peer review, that peer review is what makes science so trustworthy in the process of understanding how the earth works and the world works around us. And here you are telling me that a peer-reviewed article in a peer-reviewed journal may not be everything it's cracked up to be. Because the scientific process is more than one paper. The peer review of an individual paper says, did you get your math right? Did you make some stupid mistake? Did you ignore important data? In a paper like this that's a model, you get to make your assumptions, you have to justify your assumptions, but this is part of the process to get this type of speculation going on. And it's just a model. And statisticians like to tell us that all models are wrong, it's just that some of them are useful. So with this particular circumstance, we've got information that's flowing, but it's only one article. What needs to be done next? How do we make sure that that article isn't the only article? What are the other questions that we need to be asking about this topic, specifically for the Canary Islands? Because that article came out, the other scientists went, 80-foot wave in Florida, are you nuts? I can't imagine that would happen. Let me prove you wrong. And there's the key to the scientific process. We attack each other. We go and say, you said that, I don't think you're right, and I'm going to prove you wrong, and I'm going to go look for the information. Now, sometimes, like with plate tectonics, people said, I'm going to prove you wrong, and they ended up proving it right. It can't happen that way. In this situation, several other people have come in, showed that the assumptions about how the waves were propagating were probably unrealistic, and probably most importantly, looked at the geology on the Canary Islands and showed that it looks much more like there have been many small landslides as this big mountain erupts and then settles back down into the ocean, rather than a big flank failure. And therefore, you really aren't going to end up with a big tsunami, even when you did see landslides around this island. So now we're at a place where the initial article came out, got coverage, became prominent in people's minds, the layman people, right? The people who are not studying this on a regular basis. And then you have additional studies that are not as dramatic and therefore don't get the attention, but they've actually changed the common understanding of what is actually possible 
how do we stop that from happening? How do we make sure that the additional science gets into the conversation so that when there's an eruption, a disaster, an earthquake, some other hazard that happens, that we don't end up using the wrong information? The process did happen. The scientists know that it went on. The problem is in the communication with the public. Some of the scientists involved here call this zombie science. No matter what you do, you can't kill it. But we need to remember that the real scientific process is not just peer review of one paper, but a series of papers where models are created, tested, and in some cases, proven wrong. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Until next time, I'm John Boyery with Dr. Lucy Jones and you getting through it. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows and become a supporter at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones. 